HST, maybe not, by Simon Nelson. More railway lines, yes, HST in particular, not really. There are higher priorities, electrification of the railways, many of which are still running diesel trains, increasing capacity on intercity services, improving existing connections, reinvesting reinvestment in branch lines and newer trains. A well-staffed and free or integrated rail and bus network is the sort of large-scale infrastructure project that should come before HST. Some of the arguments used against HST are weak, but there is also good reason to question the arguments made for HST as a way to create good jobs, as a way to help the North, and as a green alternative to short-distance flight. Quote, Time to get on with building HST, end quote, was the headline on the GMB Union's website the day before Boris Johnson announced that the government planned to do that. By the time the whole project is complete, the Financial Times estimates it could have cost £106 billion. The GMB champions the jobs that will be, that will be created during the construction as well as asking, quote, ministers to concentrate on making HS2 a model of good employment practice while making sure our members can get on with building world-class infrastructure in the Midlands and the North, end quote. The GMB has presumably missed the fact that many of the companies that will be working on the project are former or current blacklisters. Eleven firms were originally chosen to undertake the initial building work from July 2017, some of them joint ventures, one of which included Carillion, got well over £1 billion of contracts awarded, despite the government knowing that Carillion was on the verge of collapse. The former head of the infrastructure division of Carillion is now the head of a joint venture of Vinci and Balfour BT, which was awarded £3.8 billion in HST contracts. The trains themselves will be operated by new franchise, the West Coast Partnership, which will be responsible for the existing West Coast mainline intercity trains, as well as the first phase of HST. The previous government has already got three bidders who wanted to do it. The ever-growing cost and the lack of oversight bothers some Tory MPs. One of the 2015 plans for HS2 included large swathes of property that would need to be purchased with no price given. Unforeseen delays or hiccups are likely to bring increases in cost, and for a project which, on current estimates, won't have trains running on until on it until 2028. Crossrail, a comparatively much smaller project and one much nearer completion, is already delayed for nearly, by nearly three years. Several Tory MPs are in opposition to HST. Some of their concerns are reasonable. Public transport is poor in the north and outside London more generally, and HST won't fix that. HST will, in the first instance, instance only give speedier non-stop journey between Birmingham and London. In the future, it's due to have extensions to Leeds and Manchester. There is talk of a future high-speed connection from Liverpool to Hull, the so-called Northern Powerhouse Rail. Some see that as dependent on HST, some as an alternative. Connections by bus or local train services between outlying towns and major centres like Manchester and Leeds are poor, and employers in those areas, as well as working-class people, are aware of that. The nationalisation of Northern Rail shows the government that shows that the government knows the problem too. Trains are currently only nine kilometres per hour faster between cities in the north, like Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool, or Newcastle than road. 
500,000 people commute over 30 kilometres every day to work in London. Over, only 250,000 people commute those distances to Liverpool, Manchester, Middlesbrough, Newcastle, Leeds and Sheffield city regions. Outlying areas of Greater Manchester and Merseyside have poor connections to the city centres. Business people in towns like Warrington or Wakefield are increasingly concerned that people working in Liverpool or Leeds who have poor train services and overcrowded and continuously cut bus services won't or can't commute by car because only 70, only 63% of people aged 20 to 29 today have learned to drive. It was 75% in 1994. will move to those cities and out of the outlying towns. A report commissioned by the government and headed by Lord Okavy, a former chair of HS2, was always likely to favour continued construction. Supporters of HS2 argue that the new HS2 line will will free capacity on existing lines to run more fre frequently stopping services, services and that it will shift journeys from air to rail. Yet only a tiny proportion of journeys between London and Birmingham are by air and not many between London and Manchester or Leeds. To replace internal flights, you need rail services from Birmingham and London to Exeter and London to Aberdeen. Constructing high-speed rail lines for relatively short trips, like London to Birmingham, and in a relatively small, densely populated country, has a different calculus from, our, from constructing them in France or China. The environmental argument against HS2 is also weak. Some ancient woodland will be destroyed, but it is a tiny percentage, 0.001% of Britain's total overall, and no more than for the construction of just 14 miles of new motorway for the lower Thames, Thames crossing. Ancient woodland is woodland that has existed continuously since 1600. It subsists in patches dotted about Britain. No new railway line of any length of route could avoid some ancient woodland. HS2 promises to replace the woodland destroyed and to increase the number of trees after its completion. But a much smaller investment could reduce the journey time between Leeds and Hull from an hour to less than 40 minutes and run twice the number of trains. The Financial Times believes that despite the growing cost, the long-term benefits of HS2 are worth the risk. The eastern extension of the Jubilee Line ran over budget but, but is credited with facilitating over 100,000 new jobs in the London Docklands which have lost over 80,000 jobs in the 1960s. But really, HS2 is focused on getting people to London quickly. As the dissenting voice, Lord Berkeley, said in the government's report in HS2, quote, getting to London is secondary for most people except for MPs and the managing directors of companies, end quote. HS2 could lift congestion and allow more local trains. Letters. Whilst there is much to agree, to agree with in Simon Nelson's article in Solidarity 534, I believe that Simon is wrong in opposing HS2. If the line was just about allowing Northerners to get to London in a shorter time, maybe he would have a point. However, probably the main reason for constructing HS2 is the limited capacity of the existing network. There is a limit on how many more longer and more frequent services can be carried on the current network. HS2 should we call it congestion line one, will take away large numbers of express trains from the current overcrowded lines, allowing more commuter and regional services to run across the Midlands and Northwest. 
Poor northern services are no reason to cancel HS2. Our response should be to call for a congestion line 2, HS3, from Liverpool to Hull or Newcastle, alongside the construction of HS2, freeing up the existing network for more local services. That should go along with removing the current bottlenecks such as Manchester Piccadilly to Oxford Road and recreating the broken links in the network like Skipton to Clitheroe cut in the beaching era. This will, this will massively help in decarbonising the transport economy and allow workers cut off in transport black spots to commute more easily to employment. For many years, improvements to railways have been done on a stop-start basis. Teams of designers, engineers and construction workers are brought together, trained and then sacked at the end of the project. Whilst the cost of HS2 and HS3 and other necessary rail projects would be large, Rolling programmes with skilled teams moving from project to project would help in reducing costs and keep large numbers of workers in employment. The inflation in the costs on current rail projects is in large part companies being told to include treasury contingency costs in their budgeting. In the case of HS2, that increased the initial cost of £32 billion to £44 billion. The bill may increase to £106 billion, contingencies on top of contingencies and guesses at inflation. The construction companies have no incentive to reduce costs, but they may pocket any savings that come their way. Nationalised network rail should control new rail construction with an incentive to reduce costs. We need long-term new railways and a national rail infrastructure plan for nationalised network rail. This plan would incorporate rolling out electrification across the network, linked to massive capacity improvements on the existing network and the reopening of many closed beaching lines now desperately needed. Any such plan, by necessity, needs to link into local and regional transport plans. More rail, yes. HS2 and HS3, yes. From Mark Catrell, Todmorden. Fewer boons of HS2. Letters. There is a lot to agree with in Mark Catterall's letter in Solidarity 536, but I'm less optimistic about the capacity argument for HS2. High-speed direct rail services between major cities could help to free up congestion, but at this rate, the second stage of HS2 could be completed somewhere between 2035 and 2040, far too late to have a significant impact on carbon emissions and reduce the amount of freight and commuters moved by road. And where will capacity be freed up? As I read it, HS2's congestion relief to the WCML is compromised by the failure to provide interconnection with the WCML. Given it will only run on two tracks, it cannot possibly serve all the cities in its zone of influence. I agree about electrification of all existing railways. Back in 2011, Network Rail was investigating the complete electrification of the whole to York Line. That was officially abandoned in 2016 by the then Rail Minister Paul Maynard from Simon Nelson, London. Page 60, further reading. We have a weekly environmental column in Solidarity and hundreds of climate articles on our website. There are countless books we might recommend beyond those reviewed and mentioned so far, but there are a few notable areas which we wanted to cover in this pamphlet but couldn't because of space. 
What is the ruling class likely to do in response to climate change in the coming decades? We read and discussed a book, Climate Leviathan, that we were heavily critical of, but which is nonetheless thought-provoking. To see to see two reviews, um, see bitly against Leviathan. How may, may global warming play out? David Wallace Wells, The Uninhabited Earth, attempts to sketch, sketch answers. <coughs> Quotes, climate disaster is already with us, end quotes, is a review of this book. There have been some critical replies and debate following this. The inter, interlocutors both agree that the book is worth reading. Fossil Capital, The Rise of Steam Power and the Roots of Global Warming by Andreas Melm attempts to chart the rise of steam power and its links to the development of capitalism. We are critical of much of his politics. See workersliberty.org Melm debates for several differing reviews on Melm's writings, a debate plus a critical study guide. We read and discussed several different readings on degrowth from a Marxist perspective. Stay updated. The climate and related science, politics and activism are constantly changing. This pamphlet will start going out of date as soon as we publish it. We work to make that happen, to build a climate movement, to move us onto a different track. There are details about how to follow this uh, on the further reading page on page 60.